Travel back in time to the 80s, reliving the music. You can't have the Pretender's first album. That's mine. I bought it. You did not. The catchphrases. Did you have a brain tumor for breakfast? And the wannabes. Sometimes I see you dance around the house in my underwear. Doesn't make me Madonna. Never will. Because just like you, we're stuck in the 80s. Can you say stuck in the 80s? Hey, hey, welcome to Stuck in the 80s. It's your host, Steve Spears, and today, an epic interview with the co-organizer of Live Aid, Midge Yor from Ultravox. Joining me from the West Coast, Brad in L.A. Steve, I'm really excited about this interview. I've been, uh, I've been, I've been just itching to like put the final touches on this podcast and release it because this is good stuff. Yeah, this is a really good interview. Um, that is a, a stunning return to form for uh, stuck in the '80s interviews. This one goes. Into the Pantheon of Classics. Instant yeah. Classic. Instant yeah. Classic. Listen to it and then listen to it again. It's that good. <laughs> so Midge is touring this f- summer and fall with the Retro Futura Tour, <laughs> which no matter how slowly I say it, still comes out awkward. Retro Futura. Um, he's touring with Howard Jones, with Tom Bailey from Thompson Twins, with uh, China Crisis and Katrina from Katrina and the Waves. Yeah. Um, they're all performing about a half hour set. And it's going all, all across the United States. And I'm lucky that it ends here in Orlando at Hard Rock Live on September 10th. And so as a result, I was able to score an interview with Midge. And I've wanted to talk to him forever. Yeah. So, um, you know, we, 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 we had a chat on Skype. He's on Skype. I'm on Skype. So uh, Let's have a Skyping team. Yeah. And uh, so he's like, he friended me on Skype. And, uh, and uh so we had this great chat about everything um, from uh, Live Aid to Band-Aid to Ultravox to his solo work uh, to the music videos. You're going to you know, you're gonna learn a lot. If you're a fan, you're going to be excited. If you're not a fan, you're going to be a fan. Exactly, exactly. For those who don't know, Midge was the co-writer of Do They Know It's Christmas from Band-Aid, which turns 30 this year. And he's the co-organizer of Live Aid, which will turn 30 next summer. We'll talk a lot about that. I think people are starting to be more aware that Midge was part of the Live Aid thing. Because I think everybody knew about Bob Geldof. Bob was out front, you know, kind of barking at people. Hey, give money. Hey, do this. Um, I didn't know that Midge was that played that big a part in it until a few years ago. But I feel like that's more common knowledge now, which is good. I mean, he ought to get credit for that. He ought to get credit. Absolutely. I mean, they, they kind of were like good cop, bad cop. Yeah. And... Uh, that's fine. I just, I mean, someone's, there's always going to be someone that's kind of out point doing the, the promo work. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's nice to see him getting some credit for that. Cause it was, you know, it was a big deal. And, and if he wasn't maybe center stage for live aid, he was definitely center stage for, do they know it's Christmas? He produced that yeah. song. He played every instrument except the drums on that song. As yeah. so, as you'll tell you in the interview, it's basically an Ultravox song. With so. a lot of really famous guest singers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so in any case, um, 
Let's listen to the interview, and I guarantee you, you'll gain a new appreciation of Midge and of Ultravox. Here we go. Hey, Steve, it's Midge. How are you? Oh, thank you for calling. Oh, no problem at all. It's a, it's a little surreal when you're on Skype and all of a sudden you see a, uh, a contact request from James Ura. You know, you're like, oh. <laughs> oh dear. It's when you, when you tell your kids about it, you're like, I think my heart went, went into my throat. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is so cool. Uh, where, where are you calling from tonight? I'm in my very messy office at home because uh, oh. it's, uh, it's uh, just got nine o'clock in the evening here. Oh, excellent, excellent. Yeah. Um, so uh, we're talking because you're coming back to the U.S. this summer uh, with the Retro Fritura Tour, which is yeah. easier to play than it is to say, <laughs> uh, with uh, Howard Jones and Tom Bailey. And thankfully, it includes a stop here uh, in Orlando, Florida, where I, where I live now. It's, it's going to be a real uh, concentration of uh, electronica and new romantic geniuses of the 80s, isn't it? Well, it's a kind of, uh, I think I've, I've uh, said to people, it's a kind of soundtrack of their lives. You know, if you were, if you were in, in college, right in the, uh, in the early to mid late 80s, you couldn't miss, you know, this stuff. This stuff was everywhere. Uh, you know, if you watched MTV in the early 80s, this stuff was everywhere. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, it's quite a good package, actually. I think it's, you know, in, in this day and age of uh, like-minded artists all kind of teaming up to try and keep ticket prices down, uh, it seems to make perfect sense. You know, Howard I've worked with before. Tom, I'm not even sure we've ever met. I, I'd met Alana many times, but I'd never met Tom, I don't think. Uh, but yeah, I think it'll be a real a real fun package. It'll be interesting to me because I don't think Tom has sang any of the Thompson Twin songs in about 27 years. Yeah, it's going to be a bit strange for him, I think, uh, getting back into the zone again. Because he's he does some uh, some some kind of weird and wonderful things. He's he's uh, he's gone through a, a lot of interesting stuff in his life, uh, and to go back and revisit something, which again, you know, obviously I've done recently with Ultravox, you know, going back and uh, getting the band back together again a few years ago. It's a strange emotion to do it, but. The moment that you strike up and you start playing those songs again with the right people, you know, with the right band making the noise, it's just fantastic because it never goes away. There's something about the combination that just makes it work. So I'm sure Tom and those songs will just kind of gel together. He's, it's like finding these long lost babies, isn't it? <laughs> I know I would have paid. I don't know how much money I would have paid or if I could have moved time and space, but I believe Ultravox toured with Simple Minds. Was it last year or the year before? Yeah, we did four shows with them. Uh, you know, Again, teaming up. You know, Jim and I had... Uh, we were sitting having lunch one day and we were talking about the state of the industry like two miserable old Scotsmen. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, we said, well, you know, the, the, the reality is that, you know, we should get a package together. You know, it should be Simple Minds and, and you know, Ultravox and you know, Tears for Fears or, or Magazine or something like that. Some of the, the, the cooler bands of the, the era. And he jumped all over it and said, OK. And I didn't think anything would come of it. 
And six months later, uh, I get a message saying that Jim's been in seeing my agent and, you know, Woods Ultravox, uh, you know, big special guests on. It was their tour, you know, special guests on their four shows. And we jumped at it. It was fantastic with a ball. I spoke to Jim a couple years ago, and we had a nice long talk, and, and a lot of it was about his frustration of not being able to properly tour the U.S., you know, we're not trying to find the right package of artists to, to go together to have it make financial sense for everybody. Yeah, and I, and I think you have to be very careful because a lot of the packages, you, you tend to think, it's a bit like throwing, you know, darts blindfolded at a dartboard, you know, and and you think, okay, well, they they had records out at the same time as them, but they've actually got nothing to do with them at all. They're not they're not like minded thinkers. They're not like minded musicians, and they put together a series of artists. Yes, we're around at the same period, but you know, you might as well have a you know a disco artist on with a heavy metal artist. It's so bizarre, some of them, but but getting the right package is the real key to it all. You know, if someone's really into Simple Minds, there's a good chance they'll be really into, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, REM or, or, you know, whoever. Uh, so that's the key to it. But, but uh, trying to manipulate and control that stuff is almost impossible. You know, this might be one of the few tours that we'll ever see these days that includes three artists who played Live Aid. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, it struck me the other day when I was reading, uh, reading about Tom, because uh, he did the American side, didn't he? Right. he did yeah, the, he was he in Philly. The, he, yeah, he did the Philly part, and, uh, and of course uh, Howard and I did the uh, the UK end. So yeah, you know, it's uh, it's fantastic. I still I still get very surprised today when I'm doing an interview with someone or I meet someone and they say, "Hey, I was there." You think, <laughs> "Oh my, wow!" You know, because it's it was only you know in the UK there was only eighty thousand tickets, eighty thousand people. And that's not a lot of people. And you think, oh, wow, you know, somebody was actually there and saw it and experienced it and, you know, breathed the same air I did that day. That's fantastic. So, uh, so yeah, three artists who all played live. You already decided on your set list for the American tour? Uh, kind of. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strange one. Uh, having to, you know, we've got five different acts on here. Uh, the first three acts being Katrina from Katrina and the Waves, uh, China Crisis, really good uh, Liverpool band, uh, again from the 80s, uh, and myself, uh, all using a house band. Uh, so it's going to be kind of quick half hour for each of us I think it's going to be so try to choose from 35 years worth of material <laughs> to what, you're <laughs> play, what you're going to play in half an hour is a bit of a tall order but yeah I think I've got it I'm going to keep it as uh, as retro as possible although I've got a new album out it's not the right place to play anything new so it will be Ultravox maybe a bit of Visage and, uh, and, a, and the rest made up with solo stuff 
Oh, great. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, I, I want to say thank you, by the way. I just finished your autobiography the other day uh, from last year, I believe it was. And oh, right. you finally settled the score on what Vienna was really about. Because for years, <laughs> I believed what you had said in interviews about, oh, it's about the Vienna secession movement. I'm like, okay, okay. I, I, you know, I don't understand that, but but I, but I like that it's intelligent. And then I read in the book that it's it evolves from somebody mispronouncing a Fleetwood Mac song and that it's actually about a holiday romance. Well, kind of. I mean, holiday romance is a bit of a simplistic way of putting it, but I think, I think you know, when you when you're steeped in history like we are over here, you walk into a city like Vienna or Venice or you know, or Berlin or whatever, and it's just they're so evocative and provocative. They just take you away from your dull, grey, miserable life. And it was the idea that being there and being in, you know, being in that that frame of mind for that two week period that you're away from your dull, miserable life that things change. I think that was probably more to do with I think I think tried to explain it as a as a holiday romance to uh, to various journalists. It's kind of Chinese whispers. A bit like a bit like somewhere on Wikipedia it says that uh, you know do they know it's Christmas was the worst song I ever wrote. <laughs> I never I never said that either. You know, I said it wasn't the best song I'd ever written. But Chinese whispers have turned it into something else. <laughs> Another thing I read in the book, since you brought up journalists, is that you kind of you, you made a remark that journalists had been tough to Ultravox over the years and maybe not really understood the band or given them enough credit. Yeah, I think that's possibly true. Uh, I think they saw us as bombastic and pompous and a bit uh, above our station, um, and 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 possibly at some points they were they were quite right, but you know they couldn't see that you know take away the 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 po-faced guys in the videos and uh, take away some of the imagery that if you just listen to the music, the music was actually intelligent and smart and, you know, creative and pushed an awful lot of boundaries. Um, and it never really, the band never really got the pat in the back that I thought it kind of deserved. It's kind of getting it now, but in its second or third generation you know you, you know i think the, the last album that ultravox did a couple of years ago the uh, the brilliant album got better reviews than anything we ever did back in the 80s so maybe maybe it's a, a different generation of journalists or the journalists have grown old like we have <laughs> it's probably true yeah i another thing i never thought ultravox got enough credit for were, were your music videos in the 80s uh, you know, people talk about Duran Duran like they invented videos. But if you look back on, you know, Vienna and Reap the Wild Wind, those are way ahead of their time. Well, I think Duran didn't really make a video until they'd seen Vienna. And that's that's I'm not saying that, uh, you know, to, to put them down. Uh, I think when people saw the Vienna video and saw the parameters that we had set uh, in there, you know, we we had a major major uh, input uh, in that. We weren't directing the videos at the time, but you know, when when we did the Vienna video, we we insisted it was shot on sixteen millimeter film, and you know we cropped the screen top and bottom to make it look like cinemascope, and it was very film noir. It was all it was all haunting imagery, uh, you know, and that very much came from us. Uh, and of course, when other artists saw that video, they all had to have one, so they all ended up using the same director, Russell Mulcahy. Um, and of course, they those bands were 
infinitely more successful in America than than Ultrabox ever were, uh, and ever ever could hope to be. And uh, and of course they they kind of stole the crown. They they ran off and became the kings of MTV. You know. Why why do you think they were more successful in America than Ultravox was? Uh, they were younger and prettier. Uh, I think that's <laughs> that's got a lot to do with it. Um, they wrote very catchy songs. I mean, a lot of the bands did back then. Ultravox were possibly their own worst enemy. Uh, you know, after the success of Vienna, uh, we were pressurised by the the, the the people around us. You know, agents, management, record company. You know. Uh, to to write a Vienna part two, and we promptly took ourselves off to Connie Plank's studio in the middle of Germany for three months with no songs, and wrote and recorded the uh, Rage and Eden album, which I think is one of the best things we ever did. But we we weren't interested in just recreating and rehashing and remaking the same thing. We wanted to kind of continue to push the boundaries, um, and and if you're if you're prepared to do that, you have to be prepared for the lack of commercial success, I suppose. So much has changed in the music business since since that time. You know, MTV doesn't play videos anymore, and now there's iTunes and Pandora and satellite radio. Uh, videos now go straight to YouTube, and artists can talk directly to fans. You know, with social media. Which of those newer tools do you personally uh, use or embrace? I think uh, I think you've got to kind of embrace almost all of it. Um, I, I started doing the social media thing. Uh, four or five years ago when Ultravox did get back together again but the, the the rumors were rife and no one believed it because they just thought it was never ever going to happen uh, so I got onto Twitter and uh, and started taking photographs of rehearsals and, and tweeting them and people just freaked and of course once you once you get into it uh, it's that it's that instantaneous thing about you know you walk off stage and you instantly see people tweeting you saying I was in row 26 seat you know 15 um you know and I you know it sounded great to me but the bass drum was a bit loud you know that instant feedback good or bad is a great thing to have um so you're not going through a middle person your words aren't being interpreted and regurgitated uh into into type uh, and that someone reads and then reads into it something else because they don't hear the tone of your voice. You can say exactly what you want to say, and it gets out there. Uh, but I suppose it's a two-way thing. You know, the fans, if they don't like something, they tell you. Uh, and you can't say, well, it got lost in the post, or you, <laughs> you, sent, you sent it to the agent, and I'm not with him anymore, you know. So, yeah. <laughs> so do, do you read? I mean, do you are you tweeting still yourself and, and still Facebooking yourself, or does someone else do that for you? How does, how does that work? I do it. I do it all. I mean, I, I just, uh, I've just been on uh, prior to talking to you and posted some photographs of uh, you know, my old friend Mick Karn, uh, the bass player from Japan, uh, whose birthday it would have been today. He died a couple of years ago, cancer. Uh, so I've just been doing that. And, and I think that's important that people see that it is you doing it, that you are proactive because uh, – because they come on and they, they write things to you in, in a very open and honest way. 
And I, I'd hate the idea that they think it was some secretary sitting here going through it all and answering as me. It's, you know, uh, the great thing about you know, Twitter and Facebook and things is that you can do it from anywhere. There's no excuse. You can't say, oh, I don't understand the technology. I don't think they believe that from me, you know. And, uh, uh, you know, there's no, you can't say, well, I, I didn't have any time. I, everyone's got time. You just have to look around you uh, in any line that you're standing in for groceries or to get on a bus or, or a plane or whatever. Everyone's on the phone. So uh, so there's no excuse. You know, we met, we talked just for a second earlier about Live Aid and, and Do They Know It's Christmas. This This fall marks the 30th anniversary of Band-Aid. And this this coming summer will be the 30th anniversary of Live Aid. When you hear, do they know it's Christmas, either on the radio or TV these days? What's what's the first thought or memory that pops into your mind? Uh, I I think the initial thing is that it does exactly what it did back then. You know that that opening clang, the oh, the, yeah. the, the the bell, the the multi-track vocal, the the drum that, that I stole from uh, uh, Tears for Fears. Uh, you know, all of that, it does exactly what it says on the tin. It does exactly what it did back then. It makes the hair in the back of your neck stand up because it's so evocative, you know, and it just stimulates uh, exactly as it was meant to do back then. It's the only piece of music that I've ever written that was designed to do one particular thing. Um, and it's a, it's a very strange thing to sit down and be as cold and calculated as that. Uh, you know, we had to write something that opened with the clanging chimes of doom, but finished with, you know, you know, happy Christmas, war is over, sing along. You know, uh, it, it, was a, it was a tall order. but And, of course, it's a song with no chorus, which is the most bizarre <laughs> thing ever. Uh, but uh, but the fact, I think the first thing is, wow, it's October. You know, it's, <laughs> it, it's, it's October and they're starting to play Christmas records already. <laughs> You know, it always drives me nuts because, you know, I live in America and so there was the USA for Africa movement and we had our own song. And I yeah. I just think there's no comparison between the two. And I always get grief, you know, from American music fans. They, I, I, I prefer the Band-Aid song. I just do. I think it's it's more intelligent. It's better crafted. It drives me nuts that that every year I have to have that little, you know, fight with people over those two songs. Yeah, well, you don't. I don't think you have to have a fight with anyone about anything. It's uh, they both did, you know, a phenomenal job. It's it's a bit like looking at your children growing up, and and then they go off and they do something brilliant. Uh, well, those those songs kind of did that, you know, both of them. Um, I think the Band Aid song is a much darker song. It's not quite as as uh, I don't know uh, instantly palatable uh, to to the American audience, certainly. But it was if you listen to the production value. Um, you know, it was very ultravox. It was very mid-European. It was very synthesized. Uh, you know, all of the stuff that I would normally do, uh, either solo-wise or with the band. Uh, so I, I played all the instruments on it, except the drums, of course. Um, uh, so it's very much if you take all the artists off it, it could easily be an ultravox track. Yeah. You know, uh, but it was very steeped in that early '80s thing uh, that America was still kind of catching up a bit with 
Um, so it was a it was a different animal, uh, really. But two, uh, two different things, both you know fighting in their corners for the same reason. Right. Uh, in your book, um, there's some great stories of your time backstage, um, including your first meeting. I presume it was your first meeting with Freddie Mercury at Live Aid. My only meeting with Freddie. I, oh. I, I'd met the rest of the band loads because they used to hang out. You know, you'd do a TV show or, or whatever, and you know, uh, you know, Roger would always be up for a bit of a laugh and uh, uh, and whatever. So, um, but yeah, Freddie was the only time I met him, when he, and he thought it was uh, the guitarist from the, the Boomtown Rats. So it, kind of, <laughs> it bust my bubble somewhat. Oh, I know. I felt I felt crushed when I read that. I was like, oh <laughs> no, totally not. I, I think it's perfectly acceptable. Had it been someone else, I might have been annoyed, but it was Freddie. You know, I, I, he just lived in his own little Freddie world. So why would he know anything? I mean, these days, I mean, you look, people look back and they say, you know, Freddie Mercury, definitely one of the top, you know, uh, uh, front front men in rock history. Did he have that sort of aura back then too? Uh, yeah, I you know I, I you know again I only saw him that that one time uh, when he was very he was very flamboyant just for the for the five or ten minutes that I stood speaking to him very flamboyant uh, you know very OTT um, but you know we all saw him on stage we we saw him that day walking on uh, at Live Aid in Wembley and he was magnificent I mean it was I defy anybody to say it wasn't it wasn't the highlight of the day because he was you know and, you know the Queen were fantastic they're they're always great but Freddie was just in his environment he was in his zone in front of all those people and he had them in the palm of his hands you know doing all these singing and scat stuff and audience singing back and it was just in seventh heaven. Yeah, I you know I own, I obviously I own the DVD now of the of that day, and I've probably watched the video of you singing Vienna probably about a hundred times. Um, that live performance it's just it just gives me chills every time. Uh, what memories of that performance um, really stick with you the most today? I think uh, it all flew by so quickly. We all had eighteen minutes to do our <clears throat> to do our uh, allocated four songs, and uh, I think we were just so petrified that something was not going to work because uh, Vienna's a very sparse song. You know, if, if the bass synth didn't work, uh, it's half the song's missing. You know, if the drum machine didn't uh, didn't play the noises, <laughs> it wouldn't be Vienna. Um, it was uh, because there was no sound check or anything. So. That was at a time when Ultravox used to spend five hours doing sound checks because of the, the technical bugs we used to have and the equipment that uh, that we used to use, and that was a very stripped down version. Um, so we were just really happy that everything seemed to work uh, during during our set, and the whole thing I have to say flew by in a moment, an absolute moment. To me, the key thing about the Vienna performance was seeing the audience putting their hands in the air and doing the, the double clap thing for the syndrome part, you know, the caca, you know, it was it was fantastic to watch that a sea of people singing along, you know. English crowds, um, as an American speaking, I was always so envious of the English crowds. They seemed so much more 
into the shows than than we tend to be over here in in America. I mean, when I see that the the, the clapping, the double clapping, you know how they reacted during Radio Gaga. I mean, I I would have given anything to be there for something like that. Well, it's not always like that. I have to say, uh, you know, I think that day was something quite special. It had been the the culmination of a six six month build up, uh, you know, to 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 Live Aid. So um, people were ready for it. You know, people were genuinely moved and concerned. Uh, that's why the record was so successful. You know, they, at a time when when they were starting to feel the pinch themselves, they were starting to, you know, money was getting tight and we were down to a three-day working week and, and socially the country was in a bit of a mess. They still put their hand in their pocket to donate money to people that they'd never meet, you know, which is just phenomenal. So this whole thing had rolled on like a great big machine right up until Live Aid, and Live Aid was the celebration. It was the party. It was the pat on the back saying, hey, well done, people. Look what we've done. This is fantastic. Not realising that the party, which we thought was the end, was the beginning. You know, it was it was just going to carry on rolling around the world, you know, so which is exactly precisely what happened. So uh, I think that people were justified in letting their hair down and, uh, you know, really going for it that day. Yeah, a lot of people my age, and I was 18. I think I just turned 18 at the time of Live Aid. Uh, we kind of consider that day to be, for, for lack of a better term, the Woodstock of our generation. Uh, what do you think today is still the lasting legacy of Live Aid? Uh, I think, uh, you know, it's a question that I've been asked many times over the last 30 years. You know, did it make a change? Did it make a difference? And, and uh, you know, you could look at you look at third world countries, you look at Africa and you think, well, there's still famines and there's still, you know, crops failing and the rains fail and all of that stuff. Uh, and nothing seems to have changed. The difference is I've met the change. I've spoken to the change. I've spoken to the people who who were in uh, aid camps as, as babies who survived because somebody put their hand in a pocket and bought that record. Um, and that is worth it. There's a great story someone told me, um, uh, two friends walking down a beach, and the beach is covered in starfish. These starfish have all been washed up on the shore. Mm-hmm. And one of them says to the other, well, we better, we better uh, you know, try and save them. And the other one said, well, we can't save them. You know, we can't do that. There's thousands of them. And the first one picked one up, put it back in the water and said, well, that's the first one. You know, and that's that's kind of how you've got to look at it. You can't fix these things overnight. It has to it has to start somewhere, and then it has to kind of uh, move on. It has to roll on. I think it's uh, I think it's interesting that you know we have people in positions of power all around the world. If you asked Obama where he was on Live Aid Day, I'll bet you could tell you. I bet you could tell you exactly where he was, and it would be the same for for almost all the world leaders, uh, because it was something that our generation connected with. You know, our entire generation all connected with rock music, um, and it wasn't just a music event; it was a massive social event. Uh, you know, it was the biggest televised uh, event ever in in, in history, uh, and it became the biggest uh, ever music event in history until until I suppose Live Aid, uh, and, and that kind of technically beat it. But I still think Live Aid had something uh, spectacular about it. You know, at a time when you couldn't, you know, you couldn't uh, send an email or, or a text or whatever because it didn't exist. You know, you had to send telexes across the Atlantic to, <laughs> to put this together. So it was kind of, it really was kind of uh, archaic 
in, in its in its time, and then having to pull live feeds from satellites from all over the world to, to try and keep this thing rolling, and have the BBC give us five hours of prime time television, unheard of stuff. Yeah, I mean, when you think back on it, I mean, I remember at the time thinking this day is going to be this day is not going to go well. It's going to be full of glitches, and yet it's not. It's one of these like little miracles that was handed down. Yeah, uh, a couple of little hiccups on the day, but it just made it more real. You know, uh, Paul's mic uh, disappearing, I think, uh, cutting off or whatever. Um, you know, but it, it didn't really matter because it wasn't about that, and it wasn't about the quality of the performance. It was about being there. It was about standing up and being counted, uh, and it was just uh, a spectacular moment. There's a, a great bit, and I'm sure I said it in the book. Just as status quo kicked off, we're all standing backstage, and you could see. The kind of glow, it almost radiated off all the artists who were all standing there because uh, it was a moment of realisation thinking, well, this is really going to happen. This, this, is, this is real, you know, because up until that point, it just seemed <clears throat> smoke and mirrors, you know. Yeah. Uh, to this day, I, I have in my living room a Live Aid poster on my wall. I'm sure you know the one. and It's got, you know, Bob and Bono and George Michael up front. Yeah. You, you can see Howard Jones, too. Um, but to me, the great shame of it is that I can't find you in it, and I feel cheated. Well, I, I'm there in spirit. <laughs> That's, that stuff happens a lot. There's nothing you can do about it. You know, I'm not I'm not a tall guy. If I'm standing in the same room as Bob, everyone sees Bob. You know, it's, <laughs> it's just the way it is. You know, you, you just rewind six months prior to that, and you see me a lot sitting behind the uh, console in the studio, <laughs> bossing people around. <laughs> So, so after Retrofentura, what's up next for you? Um, something, uh, another solo project, something with Ultravox? I've got a new solo album out. It just came out here a couple of weeks ago. It's getting the best reviews that I've ever had. Um, uh, it doesn't fit any particular format. I, I decided that having spent 10 years dabbling with this album, you know, d- tried to decide whether I wanted to be part of the music industry or not anymore, uh, that I, I finally finished it. And, uh, and it doesn't, as I say, it's uh, it's got seven minute, eight minute long tracks on it. It's just this piece of music, and uh, so I've got that out. Um, it's coming out over there on the uh, on the eighteenth, just prior to the tour starting. But I won't be per- performing this uh, on the tour because it's the wrong environment to do it. Right? Uh, you know, I, I, it wouldn't be. You could hear the tumbleweed roll by, as I say. You know, and here's something from my new album. <laughs> you know, so, what? You know. Um, so, especially on a tour like this, it would be the wrong environment. But what I'm going to do is uh, we're already talking about coming back in again uh, early next year and I'm going to come in with my acoustic guitar and and try and cover as much of the country as I possibly can, maybe in two two sections, you know, come in and, and just do a kind of troubadour thing, just me and a guitar and play uh, a substantial amount from the new album as well as uh, a lot of the old stuff as well. Wow, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, it's a fun thing to do because I can, I can chop and change. I can I can just drop in songs. If somebody shouts out, you know, can you play Answers to Nothing? I can, yeah, okay, I'll have a bash, you know, and try it, <laughs> which you can't do with a band, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, well hey, Mitch, I really appreciate your time today. Um, it has been, I can't really communicate how much of an honor this has been for me. Oh, well, it's been an absolute pleasure. It was fun.
Wow, I still get chills re-listening to that interview over and over again. Yeah, and it's not even so much an interview as it's just a conversation. I mean, you guys are chatting, and he's telling you stuff, and you know, it's it's very natural. Um, very I wish, gracious guy. I wish you could see me sometimes when I do these interviews, especially this one, because I'm sitting here like with my jaw agape, just and a goofy smile, listen, listening to him yeah. spin these amazing stories and going, "Oh my, I can't believe I'm talking to him." It's so cool. I mean, that's that's why that, that's one of the greatest things about this podcast is these conversations that you know you get to have, and then we get to have by proxy with yeah. these people. Yeah, I, I I have been in a good mood pretty much ever since this interview. So, and and then the, the discussion well, we had about the music videos, where I you know I asked him because I mean, look, if you look at the the music videos for Ultravox in the early '80s, they're amazing. Yeah, they're yeah. amazing. They're and they never nobody ever name checks. Ultravox for having great videos, and they should. And it drives me yeah. nuts that they don't. And you know, to hear him kind of talk about that was just that really meant a lot to me. Yeah, and that was it was really interesting to hear him say, "Yeah, well, the guy that we worked with, Russell Mulcahy, then everybody started using him." And if you check the you know check the list of stuff he directed, music videos he directed, he did "Video Killed the Radio Star." He did basically all the Duran Duran videos you love. He did like 20 videos for Elton John. He did the video for True. He did the video for Turning Japanese by the Vapors. I mean, it's just the, the list goes on and on. Yeah, and, yeah. and then you look at the feature films he did as well. It's crazy. Highlander, man. Yeah. I was... He did Highlander 2, too. So, I mean, I guess everyone needs to buy groceries. Highlander 2 is, is fine. There's nothing wrong with Highlander 2. It's funny. I was talking to my mom on the phone last night, and she's telling me about some book series that she's reading. I think it's called Outlander, and it's just involving time travel or something oh, between Oh yeah, there's a TV version of it. Scottish. Yeah, it's on like uh Stars or one of the And they on- called it Outlander. Oh my it's god. It's called Outlander and it, it's oh they go back in time and and she's telling me that I'm like it's called Outlander and she's like yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like cuz you know, there's a movie from the 80s called Highlander that sounds pretty much like the same thing and I, I started explaining it to her and she's like, "What? People are killing they're chopping each other's heads off. Well, that's not good." <laughs> I'm like, no, 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 you got to watch. She's like, well, Steve, I don't approve of that I kind of violence. I don't know. Violence. I don't know if I really, I, you know, I don't know if I want to talk about this anymore. I don't What's think the it's rating right. on that picture, Stephen? <laughs> I wonder what, it, it can't be an R. Have you been touching yourself again? Um, <laughs> oh, Gary! Oh, Ma, I never oh, talked off to anything. You called me, you were combing your hair. But I was, I was. Oh, Gary, shut up. Oh, God, yeah. So, I mean, I was trying to explain to her. I'm like, you know, maybe you should put it on your Netflix queue. She's like, I, I don't know that I, I really want to watch a movie about immortals chopping heads off. I'm like, well, you're missing the big picture. But anyway, <laughs> I digress. I mean, uh, anyway, so yeah, you're right. They they don't get the credit that they should for yeah, yeah. for some of this stuff. The other thing that I was really glad to hear him talk about was the kind of the lasting impact of Live Aid. And you and I had this conversation the other day on the anniversary. You know, I was sitting at home watching the DVDs and just, you know, it just kind of depressed me. And like 29 years later, is anything different? Did did that matter at all? If it happened, if it didn't happen, I went to a very dark Spearsonian place. Oh, no. There's only room and, for one uh, of us there. Thank goodness. Uh, Midge pulled me out of it. You know, the story about the starfish, you know, maybe that's a little corny, but it's true. You know, you know, the fact that he can say, you know, I've met the people that that helped, uh, you know, that that makes you feel like maybe it wasn't all for nothing. Maybe we did make the world a little bit better place. Is this the world we created? What do we do it for? Is this the 
every great thing that's coming to him and i cannot Absolutely. wait i cannot wait to sit in the third row at hard rock live in orlando and watch him perform for half an hour and if he comes back on a solo tour like he's talking about damn straight i want to be in the third row and watch that i'm fascinated with him and his work and what he's done and you know, i'm glad we we're able to share that with everybody yeah well you know i know you can't wait to see that but you know what i can't wait for the Seggies. Hey, it looks like it's time for Reader Mailbag. And this week, we have a story from Michelle in Missouri who talks about – I guess she heard our last podcast where I tell the whole Frankie Goes to Hollywood lip sync story. That's that's actually believe it or not that's two podcasts ago. That's man. two podcasts we're ago. Turning them out, man. We're crank turning that crank and podcasts oh are coming out. It's like a sausage. So two battery. podcasts ago, yeah. <laughs> um, I love I love my Frankie Goes to Hollywood lip sync story. I can't tell enough. I have to tell it because in a couple of years I'm not going to be able to remember it anymore. <laughs> well, now we have a recording of it, so you can listen so, to it to remind yourself what happened. Right. So, um, why don't you read the letter? Okay. So Michelle starts. Hey, Stephen Brad. I just finished catching up on your latest podcast and enjoyed hearing Steve's fond memories of high school lip sync contests. A few years ago, we attended my stepdaughter's elementary school talent show. Ooh, have you been to an elementary school talent show, Steve? No, I don't, I don't think so. Talk about a very dark place. They can get a little out there. Anyway, the one saving grace of the ones that my kids did was that they had <laughs> like a 90-second a performance limit <laughs> like they wouldn't let you do more than that okay so, anyway anyway so at least it's you know it may be horrible but it's short anyway uh, returning to michelle's letter uh one of the acts was a young boy at the drums dressed in full rocker gear imagine <laughs> the excitement of the crowd of 80s nation parents as queens we will rock you blared from the speakers the boy played along with a song beating those three familiar notes that we all stomped along to in the bleachers back in the day we cheered for more but alas, apparently those three notes were all he knew. Huh. That boy was Sean Davis. Uh, <laughs> no, okay, sorry. Enough editorializing. Yes, he played that same beat along with the entire song. It was the longest and most painful two minutes of our lives. So cherish your successful run as lip sync champions because for every Frankie Goes to Hollywood, there's a We Will Rock You that goes on way too long. Words to live by. Just a quick note about Valley Girl, one of my very favorite movies of all times. One of the best parts of the movie is the 80s fashion. Even though I grew up in southwest Missouri, I rocked the same preppy look here with pastel plaid Oxford. Pastel plaid Oxford. I rocked the same preppy look here with pastel plaid Oxfords and pink polos with the color turned up. Pop it. Pop it. Maybe a show about 80s fashion trends should be in your future. After all, who doesn't love a good pair of jam shorts and an OP t-shirt? Forever stuck in the 80s in a pink sleeveless sweater vest, Michelle in Missouri. 
totally imagining that pink sleeveless sweater vest right yeah now. so am i is it, is it like an argyle does it have the argyle pattern on the front or is it just plain pink i don't either know either way either way either way michelle we're not doing a show on fashion in the 80s it's been done it's terrible look it up it's one of my least favorite shows of all time i think it's episode it's in the first 20 yeah it's bad it's horrible it's bad you can't you know, there's plenty of things we could talk. I mean, if you're going to do a fashion show, I mean, it's it's totally visual. You have to do it as a blog item or something like that. Yeah, you can't sit there and talk, describe about it. Just and, and then it has buttons that are round and there are four holes in them. You stitch them into the placket of <laughs> it's the show. Bad. Yeah. It was it was it was in the early days when Gina Vivanetta was still on the show, and I know we had a she had another there, guest. She had a guest, and and the two of them talked for. A half hour straight, and I think I said three words. The, the Gina shows are fantastic. Let me be on the record there. But that show where she and her friend talk about, oh, here is this one popular fashion trend, followed by a couple of minutes of, but we were too cool to do that. We did this other thing. I'm like, you know what? I, I just check, please. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I miss I miss popping the collars. I, I I really enjoyed doing that. You can still pop it. Uh, I don't want to come People across as a d bag. <laughs> I'm already ridiculed for my my fashion sense is like on a negative scale these days. I mean, really, so bad that I actually have a, a Darth Vader polo shirt now that has a little uh, instead of having a little polo guy, there's a little uh, Darth Vader mask there. That to me is like you're going to fit in just fine with the IT professionals. Yeah, they loved it. They saw it. They're all like, oh, oh, well, let me unlock the, the firewall for you. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, yeah, no, I. God knows I love 80s fashion, especially I mean, everything about it. Everything. Well, maybe not the um, like the zipper jackets and the say, parachute pants. Parachute but, pants. <clears throat> but ninety percent of it, not ninety percent of it. I would I would bring it back today. You know, if any of it was poss- possibly available in my size. But uh, we'll see about that. As always, we love your emails. Uh, yeah, keep the letters coming. Uh, the email address, as always, sit80s at gmail We'll be right back after this commercial break. Presenting the cold, refreshing mountains of Bush. The mountain, symbol of all the good natural ingredients that go into Bush. Symbol of all the good natural taste that pours out. Always smooth and natural and refreshing. Bush after bush after bush. So don't just reach for a beer. Head for the mountains. We're back, and I want to talk a little bit more about the Retro Futura Tour. <laughs> the Ultra Voxian. I can't stop screwing up saying the name of that Retro tour. Retro Futura. Retro Futura. Few. Retro Futura. Like few. Yeah, this is not going to work for me. I can tell you right now. Well, just, <laughs> just go to the Can we go back to Regeneration Tour? You you can you can call it the tour formerly known as Regeneration. That's what I'm going to do from now on. So anyway, um, tickets are on sale. I think now for all stops on the tour. If you go to Facebook and you type in Retro Futura, 
<laughs> you will find you will find the page and you'll be able to find the dates uh, to the shows nearest you. I'm glad this one is going coast to coast. That's the only proper way to do it. Um, I should also say that coming up next, our next show will be, or I presume will be our next show. Tom Bailey from the Thompson Twins joins us. Yeah, that's. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I've already recorded that. that. Already recorded it. That's a done deal. They're not going to pull a go go zombie. I've got this one in the can. Steve has been teasing me with it. It's like, yeah, nope, you've got you to finish up Ure, and then you can have some Thompson <laughs> Twins. So that's 20 minutes of, of me and Tom Bailey talking about Thompson Twins history. It's pretty good. He's a really super nice guy. He's got some good stories to tell. Uh, we do talk about Live Aid, you know, and they played the Philly version. <clears throat> so we'll see how that goes. Coming up soon on Stuck in the 80s. In the meantime, if you're going to be in the Orlando area and you're going to the Orlando show, you know, drop me a line. Let me know. We'll try to meet up ahead of time or something like that. Um, it'd be fun to meet some of the – I knew a lot of the, the Tampa Bay area Stuck in the 80s uh, nation members, but I've not yet really met too many people in Orlando. So that would be kind of nice for a chance. Oh, yeah? Yeah. You we'll see. need to connect with, connect with Steve. He's a nice guy. Yeah. He's alone. He needs friends. You know how he comes off as kind of gruff on the podcast and Do angry? I? Really, he's a giant teddy bear. He just Am I, am I just... gruff on the podcast? No. <laughs> okay, just, just checking. He's sensitive, too, ladies. Overly sensitive, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Well, thanks to Midge for joining us. I really hope you enjoyed this, ep- this episode. I know I had a blast talking to him and producing that episode. In the meantime, Midge... Brad, and even Tom Bailey. We all remain here hopelessly stuck in the ears. Stuck in the 80s is a class of 85 production. Please listen responsibly. Yeah.